Chapter Thirteen, Part Two of Industrial Biography, Ironworkers and Toolmakers by Samuel Smiles. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Clive Catterall. Joseph Clement, Part Two. The year after Mr. Clement bought out his improved turning lathe, he added to it his self-adjusting double-driving centre-chuck, for which the Society of Arts awarded him their silver medal in 1828. In introducing this invention to the notice of the Society, Mr. Clement said, Although I have been in the habit of turning, and making turning lathes and other machinery for upwards of thirty-five years, and have examined the best turning lathes in the principal manufactories throughout Great Britain, I find it universally regretted by all practical men that they cannot turn anything perfectly true between the centres of the lathe. It was found, by experience, that there was a degree of eccentricity, and consequently of imperfection, in the figure of any long cylinder turned while suspended between the centres of the lathe, and made to revolve by the action of a single driver. Under such circumstances the pressure of the tool tended to force the work out of the right line, and to distribute the strain between the driver and the adjacent centre, so that one end of the cylinder became eccentric with respect to the other. By Mr. Clement's invention of the two-armed driver, which was self-adjusting, the strain was taken from the centre and divided between the two arms, which being equidistant from the centre, effectually corrected all eccentricity in the work. This invention was found of great importance in ensuring the true turning of large machinery, which before had been found a matter of considerable difficulty. In the same year, 1828, Mr. Clement began the making of fluted taps and dies, and he established a mechanical practice with reference to the pitch of the screw, which proved of the greatest importance in the economics of manufacture. Before his time, each mechanical engineer adopted a thread of his own, so that when a piece of work came under repair, the screw-hop had usually to be drilled out, and a new thread was introduced, according to the usage which prevailed in the shop in which the work was executed. Mr. Clement saw a great waste of labour in this practice, and he promulgated the idea that every screw of a particular length ought to be furnished with its appointed number of threads of a settled pitch. Taking the inch as the basis of his calculations, he determined the number of threads in each case, and the practice thus initiated by him, recommended as it was by convenience and economy, was very shortly adopted throughout the trade. It may be mentioned that one of Clement's ablest journeymen, Mr. Whitworth, has since his time been mainly instrumental in establishing the settled practice, and Whitworth's thread, initiated by Clement, has become recognised throughout the mechanical world. To carry out his idea, Clement invented his screw-engine lathe, with gearing, mandrel, and sliding-table wheelwork, by means of which he first cut the inside screw-tools from the left-handed hobs, the reverse mode having before been adopted. While in shaping machines he was the first to use the revolving cutter attached to the slide-rest. Then, in 1828, he fluted the taps for the first time with a revolving cutter other makers having up to that time only notched them. Among his other inventions in screws may be mentioned his headless tap, which, according to Mr. Naismith, is so valuable an invention that, if he had done nothing else, it ought to immortalise him among mechanics. 
it passed right through the hole to be tapped, and was thus enabled to do the duty of three ordinary screws. By these improvements much greater precision was secured in the manufacture of tools and machinery, accompanied by a greatly reduced cost of production, the results of which are felt to this day. Another of Mr. Clement's ingenious inventions was his planing machine, by means of which metal plates of large dimensions were planed with perfect truth and finished with beautiful accuracy. There is perhaps scarcely a machine about which there has been more controversy than this, and we do not pretend to be able to determine the respective merits of the many able mechanics who have had a hand in its invention. It is exceedingly probable that others beside Clement worked out the problem in their own way by independent methods, and this is confirmed by the circumstance that, though the results achieved by the respective inventors were the same, the methods employed by them were in many respects different. As regards Clement, we find that previous to the year 1820 he had a machine in regular use for planing the triangular bars of lathes and the sides of weaving looms. This instrument was found so useful and so economical in its working that Clement proceeded to elaborate a planing machine of a more complete kind, which he finished and set to work in the year 1825. He prepared no model of it, but made it directly from the working drawings and it was so nicely constructed that when put together it went without a hitch, and has continued steadily working for more than thirty years down to the present day. Clement took out no patent for his invention, relying for protection mainly on his own and his workman's skill in using it. We therefore find no specification of his machine at the patent office, as in the case of most other capital inventions but a very complete account of it is to be found in the Transactions of the Society of Arts for 1832, as described by Mr. Varley. The practical value of the planing machine induced the Society to apply to Mr. Clement for liberty to publish a full description of it, and Mr. Varley's paper was the result. It may be briefly stated that this engineer's plane differs greatly from the carpenter's plane the cutter of which is only allowed to project so far as to admit of a thin shaving to be sliced off, the plane working flat in proportion to the width of the tool, and its length and straightness preventing the cutter from descending in any hollows in the wood. The engineer's plane more resembles the turning lathe, of which, indeed, it is but a modification, working up on the same principle on flat surfaces. The tools or cutters in Clement's machine were similar to those used in the lathe, varying in like manner, but performing their work in right lines, the tool being stationary and the work moving under it, the tool only travelling when making lateral cuts. To save time, two cutters were mounted, one to cut while the work going and the other while returning, both being so arranged and held as to be presented to the work in the firmest manner with the least possible friction. The bed of the machine, on which the work was laid, passed under the cutters on perfectly true rollers or wheels, lodged and held in their bearings as accurately as the best mandrel could be, and having set screws acting against their ends totally preventing all end motion. The machine was bedded on a massive and solid foundation of masonry in heavy blocks, the support at all points being so complete as effectually to destroy all tendency to vibration, with the object of securing full, round, and quiet cuts. 
The rollers on which the planing machine travelled were so true that Clement himself used to say of them, if you were to put a paper shaving under one of the rollers, it would at once stop all the rest. Nor was this any exaggeration, the entire mechanism, notwithstanding its great size, being as true and as accurate as that of a watch. By an ingenious adaption of the apparatus, which will also be found described in the Society of Arts paper, the planing machine might be fitted with a lathe bed, either to hold two centres or a head with a suitable mandrel. When so fitted, the machine was enabled to do the work of a turning lathe, though in a different way, cutting cylinders or cones in their longitudinal direction perfectly straight, as well as solids or prisms of any angle, either by the longitudinal or lateral motion of the cutter. Whilst by making the work revolve, it might be turned as in any other lathe. This ingenious machine, as contrived by Mr. Clement, therefore represented a complete union of the turning lathe with the planing machine and dividing engine, by which turning of the most complicated kind might readily be executed. For ten years after it was set in motion, Clement's was the only machine of the sort available for planing large work, and being consequently very much in request, it was often kept going night and day, the earnings by the planing machine alone during that time forming the principal income of its inventor. As it took in a piece of work six feet square, and by his charge for planing was three halfpence the square inch, or eighteen shillings the square foot, he could thus earn by his machine alone some ten pounds for every day's work of twelve hours. We may add that since planing machines in various forms have become common in mechanical workshops, the cost of planing does not amount to more than three halfpence the square foot. The excellence of Mr. Clement's tools, and his well-known skill in designing and executing work requiring unusual accuracy and finish, led to his being employed by Mr. Babbage to make his celebrated calculating or difference engine. The contrivance of a machine that should work out complicated sums in arithmetic with perfect precision was, as may be readily imagined, one of the most difficult feats of the mechanical intellect. To do this was in an especial sense to stamp matter with the impress of mind, and render it subservient to the highest thinking faculty. Attempts had been made at an early period to perform arithmetical calculations by mechanical aids more rapidly and precisely than it was possible to do by the operations of the individual mind. The preparation of arithmetical tables of high numbers involved a vast deal of labour, and even with the greatest care errors were unavoidable and numerous. Thus, in a multiplication table prepared by a man so eminent as Dr. Hutton for the Board of Longitude, no fewer than forty errors were discovered in a single page taken at random. In the tables of the Nautical Almanac, where the greatest possible precision was desirable and necessary, more than five hundred errors were detected by one person, and the tables of the Board of Longitude were found equally incorrect. But such errors were impossible to be avoided so long as the ordinary modes of calculating, transcribing, and printing continued in use. The earliest and simplest form of calculating apparatus was that employed by the schoolboys of ancient Greece, called the abacus, consisting of a smooth board with a narrow rim, on which they were taught to compute by means of progressive rows of pebbles, bits of bone or ivory, or pieces of silver coin used as counters. 
The same board, strewn over with sand, was used for teaching the rudiments of writing and the principles of geometry. The Romans subsequently adopted the abacus, dividing it by means of perpendicular lines or bars, and from the description of calculus, which they gave to each pebble or counter employed on the board, we have derived our English word to calculate. The same instrument continued to be employed during the Middle Ages, and the table used by the English court of exchequer was but a modified form of the Greek abacus, the chequered lines across it giving the designation to the court, which still survives. Tallies, from the French word tailler, to cut, were another of the mechanical methods employed to record computations, though in a very rude way. Step by step, improvements were made, the most important being that invented by Napier of Merchiston, the inventor of logarithms, commonly called Napier's bones, consisting of a number of rods divided into ten equal squares and numbered, so that the whole, when placed together, formed the common multiplication table. By these means various operations in multiplication and division were performed. Sir Samuel Morland, Gunter, and Lamb introduced other contrivances applicable to trigonometry, Gunter's scale being still in common use. The calculating machines of Gersten and Pascal were of a different kind, working out arithmetical calculations by means of trains of wheels and other arrangements, and that contrived by Lord Stanhope for the purpose of verifying his calculations with respect to the national debt was of like character. But none of these will bear for a moment to be compared with a machine designed by Mr. Babbage for performing arithmetical calculations and mathematical analyses, as well as for recording the calculations when made, thereby getting rid entirely of individual error in the operations of calculation, transcription, and printing. The French government, in their desire to promote the extension of the decimal system, had ordered the construction of logarithmical tables of vast extent, but the great labour and expense involved in the undertaking prevented the design from being carried out. It was reserved for Mr. Babbage to develop the idea by means of a machine which he called the Difference Engine. This machine is of so complicated a character that it would be impossible for us to give any intelligible description of it in words. Although Dr. Lardner was unrivalled in the art of describing mechanism, he occupied twenty-five pages of the Edinburgh Review, volume 59, in endeavouring to describe its action, and there were several features in it which he gave up as hopeless. Some parts of the apparatus and modes of action are indeed extraordinary, and perhaps none more so than that for ensuring accuracy in the calculated results, the machine actually correcting itself, and rubbing itself back into accuracy when the disposition to err occurs by the friction of adjacent machinery. When an error is made, the wheels become locked and refuse to proceed. Thus the machine must go rightly or not at all. An arrangement as nearly resembling volition as anything that brass and steel are likely to accomplish. This intricate subject was taken up by Mr. Babbage in 1821, when he undertook to superintend for the British government the construction of a machine for calculating and printing mathematical and astronomical tables. The model first constructed to illustrate the nature of his invention produced figures at the rate of forty-four a minute. In 1832 the Royal Society was requested to report upon the invention, 
and after full inquiry the committee recommended it as one deserving of public encouragement. A sum of £1,500 was then placed at Mr. Babbage's disposal by the Lords of the Treasury for the purposes of enabling him to perfect his invention. It was at this time that he engaged Mr. Clement as draughtsman and mechanic to embody his ideas in a working machine. Numerous tools were expressly contrived by the latter for executing the several parts, and workmen were specially educated for the purpose of using them. Some idea of the elaborate character of the drawings may be formed from the fact that those required for the calculating machinery alone, not to mention the printing machinery which was almost equally elaborate, covered not less than four hundred square feet of surface. The cost of executing the calculating machine was of course very great, and the progress of the work was necessarily slow. The consequence was that the government first became impatient and then began to grumble at the expense. At the end of seven years the engineer's bills alone were found to amount to nearly £7,200, and Mr. Babbage's costs out of pocket to 7000 more. In order to make more satisfactory progress, it was determined to remove the works to the neighbourhood of Mr. Babbage's own residence. But as Clement's claims for conducting the operations in the new premises were thought exorbitant, and as he himself considered that the work did not yield him the average profit of ordinary employment in his own trade, he eventually withdrew from the enterprise, taking with him the tools which he had constructed for executing the machine. The government also shortly after withdrew from it, and from that time the scheme was suspended, the calculating engine remaining a beautiful but unfinished fragment of a great work. Though originally intended to go as far as twenty figures, it was only completed to the extent of being capable of calculating to the depth of five figures, and two orders of difference. And only a small part of the proposed printing machinery was ever made. The engine was placed in the Museum of King's College in 1843, enclosed in a glass case, until the year 1862, when it was removed for a time to the Great Exhibition where it formed perhaps the most remarkable and beautifully executed piece of mechanism, the combined result of intellectual and mechanical contrivance, in the entire collection. Clement was on various other occasions invited to undertake work requiring extra skill, which other mechanics were unwilling or unable to execute. He was thus always full of employment, never being under the necessity of canvassing for customers. He was almost constantly in his workshop, in which he took great pride. His dwelling was over the office in the yard, and it was with difficulty he could be induced to leave the premises. On one occasion Mr. Brunel of the Great Western Railway called upon him to ask if he could supply him with a superior steam whistle for his locomotives, the whistles which they were using giving forth very little sound. Clement examined the specimen brought by Brunel, and pronounced it to be mere tallow-chandler's work. He undertook to supply the proper article, and after his usual fashion he proceeded to contrive a machine or tool for the express purpose of making steam-whistles. They were made and supplied, and when mounted on the locomotive the effect was indeed screaming. They were heard miles off, and Brunel, delighted, ordered a hundred. But when the bill came in, it was found that the charge made for them was very high, 
as much as forty pounds the set. The company demurred at the price, Brunel declaring it to be six times more than the price they had before been paying. "'That may be,' rejoined Clement, "'but mine are more than six times better. You ordered a first-rate article, and you must be content to pay for it.' The matter was referred to an arbitrator who awarded the full sum claimed. Mr. Weld mentions a similar case of an order which Clement received from America to make a large screw of given dimensions, in the best possible manner, and he accordingly proceeded to make one with the greatest mathematical accuracy. But his bill amounted to some hundreds of pounds, which completely staggered the American, who did not calculate on having to pay more than twenty pounds at the utmost for the screw. The matter was, however, referred to arbitrators, who gave the decision, as in the former case, in favour of the mechanic. One of the last works which Clement executed as a matter of pleasure was the building of an organ for his own use. It will be remembered that when working as a slater at Great Ashby he had made flutes and clarinets, and now in his old age he determined to try his skill at making an organ, in his opinion the king of musical instruments. The building of it became his hobby, and his greatest delight was in superintending its progress. It cost him about two thousand pounds in labour alone, but he lived to finish it, and we have been informed that it was pronounced a very excellent instrument. Clement was a heavy-browed man, without any polish of manner or speech, for to the last he continued to use his strong Westmoreland dialect. He was not educated in a literary sense, for he had read but little, and could write with difficulty. He was eminently a mechanic, and had achieved his exquisite skill by observation, experience, and reflection. His head was a complete repertory of inventions, on which he was constantly drawing for the improvement of mechanical practice. Though he had never more than thirty workmen in his factory, they were all of the first class and the example which Clement set before them of extreme carefulness and accuracy in execution rendered his shop one of the best schools of its time for the training of thoroughly accomplished mechanics. Mr. Clement died in 1844, in his sixty-fifth year, after which his works were carried on by Mr. Wilkinson, one of his nephews, and his planing machine still continues in useful work. End of chapter 13